Good morning and welcome to this week's Market Thinkers discussion. I'm Jamie Nepsis and I'm joined by my business partner, Drew Meredith, and our guest, Chad Heitzman of ETF Securities. Hi, Drew. Hi, Chad. Hey, Hi. Jamie. Either of you back a winner yesterday? No. No, no. Okay. Every week we are bringing insights from portfolio managers, CEOs, thought leaders, investment experts in the attempt to bring you, the investor, closer to the coalface. It's, it's very much the coalface that Drew and I and the rest of our team faces every day. For, for the new listeners, Wattle Partners is a fee-for-service uh, wealth management firm based out of Melbourne, but we have clients all over Australia. As the name suggests, we manage individuals, mum and dads, superannuation funds, trusts, foundations, and other pools of capital, tailoring portfolio construction to clients' stated risk appetite, return objectives, and any other overlays, overlays like ESG. We also do traditional financial planning like budgeting um, and strategy around entities. Um, our origins really date back to 1973 when Austin Donnelly founded the group. He was really an advocate for investor rights um, and he also founded the Australian Investors Association and he was what we think the first financial planner that was <clears throat> fee-for-service and independent. He held uh, dealer's license number one in Queensland. In our session, um, in this session, we welcome Chad uh, of ETF Securities. And Chad, um, we know Chad because he is very much the front, front person at ETF Securities that we deal, deal with on a week in, week out basis. And this session will be a little bit different from other sessions. We will be talking about gold, but we'll be also talking about ETFs and what role that they play in portfolios. And we've always said that these sessions should be interactive. So we ask you to ask as many questions as you like about ETFs. ETFs are still relatively new into this market. Um, so any question, any question at all is welcome throughout the period. Uh, just talking about this session, uh, what will happen is Drew will first introduce um, Chad and ETFs uh, and gold and why and how we become accustomed to ETFs and uh, investing through physical gold through ETFs. And then we'll ask, I'll ask Chad 10 quick fire questions to kind of get his personality going. That shouldn't be a problem. And then we're going to get into some questions and the questions will go from ETFs generally all the way down to gold. And then we might have enough time to talk about some other ETFs that uh, are available through ETF, uh, ETF securities. Drew, do you want to yeah, thanks, Jamie. Yeah, as Jamie mentioned, it's going to be a little bit different. We're going to go into the growing role that uh, exchange-traded funds or ETFs are having in investment markets and all kinds of portfolios. Um, as Chad will explain later, it, the name kind of explains itself. It's an exchange-traded fund, so not much different to a managed fund, with the difference being you can buy and sell it on the ASX. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> that was a little joke in there. Uh, and, and everyone probably knows we tend to prefer actively managed funds for our equity uh, exposures at the moment, um, but ETFs can play a, a unique role in offering exposure to individual themes, which we'll discuss later, sectors and even less accessible asset classes, gold bullion being the biggest. I can see a shake, a nodding head. Mm -hmm. um, and as, as clients would know, we've been recommending gold for something like seven years now. 
Uh, initially, we were buying it directly at the Perth Mint, which required, as every fund, an application forms, physical signatures, mail, relying on Australia Post, identification. Uh, and at the time, about seven years ago, ETF securities was around, but the, the fund wasn't as big as it is today. So as we enter uh, this week, I think the gold or GOLD ETF is now over a billion dollars. Uh, is that right, Chad? It's actually, in fact, um, about 2.2 billion. 2.2. <laughs> I was way off. Thanks, Jamie, for that one. Uh, and I think the, the key benefit in the introduction is that um, ETFs, you can trade immediately. You don't need to do an application form. You don't need to physically transfer money. And you can generally buy hedged and un unhedged versions at different times as you need them. So we'll pass back to Jamie for those quick questions. Okay, Chad, uh, the idea here is one minute, 10 questions. We're, uh, we're after one, two, three or four word answers. Okay. Saying that last week, the first question went uh, for nearly five minutes. So <laughs> let's see how you go. Um, first question, what is the best stock you've ever bought personally? Uh, Apple. What is, the, what is your biggest investment regret not buying more Apple? Uh, Amazon. What is the one red flag for any investment? Uh, a poor ROIC, which is basically a return on your incremental capital invested into the business. What is the most important ratio you use? Um, the return on investor capital, I think. I think I just read that twice. Sorry. Pineapple on pizza. Uh, you know what? On that one, I would say no, just because I'm from Chicago, but uh, everybody has a preference and that's the beauty of um, everything. So. <laughs> Name one belonging from your youth you still wish you had today. Uh, memorabilia, general memorabilia. Baseball ben, cards or... You grew up in, um, uh, in Chicago going to the baseball, I assume? Yes. Yeah, okay. Best piece of advice you've ever received? Um, have a risk appetite. Uh, be comfortable making decisions despite uncertainty. Best region to invest today? As a matter of fact, it would be the US and China. I know they're not necessarily regions, they're countries, but moving forward, I think the view is that Asia in particular has some kind of structural growth uh, tailwinds to it. Okay, you retired today, Chad, and you've got all the money you've ever earned and you've got to put it in one stock, not an ETF, one stock, um, what is it? Amazon. And if it's an ETF, which one is it? Uh, if it's an ETF, the S&P 500. You have to short one NASDAQ stock for the next 12 months. Which one is it? Maybe Kraft Heinz. Yeah, good one. All right. Thanks, Chad. That was awesome. Even though I asked you the same question twice. <laughs> <laughs> no, they were both, one was positive, one was negative. So <laughs> what, about, answer. <laughs> what about who wins the US election? Have you got that uh, answer? Yeah, I wish I did, but uh, based on national polling, it looks like uh, it's going to be a Biden victory. But nevertheless... I think there could be a, some surprises on a state-by-state -state basis. Mind you, when the U.S. has an election, it's not so much a national election as 50 individual elections per state um, in relation to the Electoral College. So on that front, uh, I think there's a few states still in play. But if you follow the polling in terms of popular vote, it looks like Biden has it. Okay. All right. Thanks again. Drew, do you want to start with um, talking about ETFs? Yeah, I think I'll maybe a good intro from Chad, how you got to 2 billion, not 1 billion, and sort of the, <laughs> how long have you been at ETF Securities uh, and the growth that you've seen and where the growth's come from. Is that coming from, you know, the gold 
obviously some, yep. <laughs> uh, but also some of the, uh, you know, US equities, Australian equity products. Um, okay, so beginning from the beginning, I'll mention that uh, ETF securities, uh, we've been in play around since 2003. And we started, as, as you mentioned, Drew, or alluded to on the basis of our gold fund. So it was the world's first physically backed gold fund with entitlement to metal, which is a crucial part of the product structure that you have ownership over the allocated uh, asset backed uh, fund, the ETF. Uh, our owner, Graham Tuckwell, is an Australian. He subsequently, after 2003, brought the business uh, to London and New York, where basically it flourished. It was only in 2015 that we had a refocus on Australia. Um, that was the point at which we thought the potential for ETFs, uh, the market, to tremendously grow. So we refocused um, here. And that was the point at which also we started to expand our equity uh, ETF. So initially it was the alternative low cost uh, assets in the form of precious metals, such as gold, silver as diversifiers in the context of asset allocation. Then we started to build out the range uh, in terms of uh, a variety of equity strategies, dividend strategies, for example, thematic oriented funds that capture companies in certain subsectors and so on and so forth. Um, in terms of this year in flow, uh, in inflows and in, in which funds have had the most traction, uh, gold, certainly so. So year to date, uh, the traction that we've received in capital markets is about uh, 800 million in inflow. So nearly this year alone, we've captured a uh, billion dollars uh, into the gold fund. And then on the equity side, um, those strategies, those passive portfolios, index-based portfolios that have really resonated with clients are our so-called thematic funds. And those are basically portfolios that are geared to identifying opportunities uh, in certain areas. So for example, robotics, automation, artificial intelligence, uh, we have something of an active asset index strategy for that that's been doing well. Um, as has, uh, we have a portfolio that covers the global value chain that underpins battery technology. And that especially, um, given that there's a, a shift in focus on going toward renewables, uh, batteries plays into that as a kind of an infrastructure for renewable energy in terms of solar, wind, and so forth. Um, and then also we have a, a U.S. biotechnology uh, portfolio index, and that basically encompasses uh, the U.S. biotechnology space as a subsector of healthcare. So there's around 120 U.S. companies there. You think about Moderna, Gilead Sciences, all of those that are in the race for therapeutics and vaccines we cover. That has very much picked up in traction. And then lastly, we have a, a FANG portfolio, which is a, a basic plain uh, basket of 10 stocks, self-explanatory, covering those companies like Facebook, uh, Apple, Amazon, Netflix. And it also has scope for two Chinese uh, companies that are, are titans in their own space, um, Alibaba and Baidu. Those, in a nutshell, are the funds where we've seen most inflow this year. Yeah. Should we take a step back, Jamie, and could you compare... Can you compare, say, the reasons why someone would go and buy an ETF versus a, what do you think the better comparison is, a listed investment company like a, an Argo or a, an actively managed fund? So, so let's even one step 
behind that. So an <laughs> ETF is essentially a listed vehicle that has got a collection of assets underneath it, right? So it could be physical gold held in a Perth Mint or somewhere else. It could be another commodity, or it could be a predetermined group of shares like the S&P the 500, so the top 500 stocks in the US or uh, Australian 100, so it could be 100 stocks. So it's just an instrument that's listed on the ASX that has a predetermined pool of assets, either listed or unlisted, that you can buy each and every day. The difference is that uh, versus a LIC that could grow uh, that can't grow, it's just one fixed pool of capital, is when you get more and more demand, you essentially go and create more products so you, you can grow the fund, which means there's some real advantages over an LIC, which will... Uh, which will be this price will be determined by how many people want to buy it and how many people want to sell it on the day where your price of an ETF is essentially always or pretty close to the underlying value of the pool of assets that either being the gold or the direct shares is that well, that's, I'm saying that that is true. <laughs> uh, so that that's essentially a difference between an ETF um, and a LIC. Yep. Should so, we go into how that how an ETF then on that basis works on a daily basis? Chad, could you kind of introduce the concept of market makers and how that basket of units is issued? Sure. Um, so what Jamie said was a perfect summary. Um, and the difference between uh, a listed investment company and an ETF is that an ETF is open-ended. And this is where the market maker comes into play. So if a fund is open-ended, it means that new units can be issued rather than having a fixed amount of units uh, on the exchange. So like uh, a listed investment company, it, it's fixed in terms of the number of units issued. Therefore, you can get price premiums or discounts to the underlying net asset value of the fund. Uh, with an exchange-traded fund, because you can newly issue units in relation to demand. So if you have a fall in demand, uh, you take units off the market, or if you have an increase in demand, you bring units uh, to the market. And that's the point at which um, a market maker comes into play. So as the name suggests, uh, a market maker makes a market. And that means that they sit on the buy side and the sell side uh, after they bring the, the units that we give them as an ETF provider to the exchange. Uh, they facilitate basically the buying and selling to keep liquidity going and so forth. I guess that's what, you know, a market maker, one way to think about him is they're a facilitator. They come to us, they buy in bulk, so to speak. Uh, they have the units and then they issue them onto the exchange uh, in relation to a particular ETF, be it from ETF securities, be it from Vanguard and so on and so forth. So they're a facilitator. And the reason why an, an ETF provider such as ourselves uh, we don't market make is that's a very specialized area and what's involved is that the market maker has to hedge their exposure to that ETF and that hedging capability is very much a specialized uh, thing that market makers are able to do. Um, so, and the management fee, so your management fee covers part of a payment to the ETF, uh, to, sorry, to the market maker. Precisely true, yes. Yep. Um, so, 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 so tomorrow, sorry, Chad. So tomorrow, if I wanted to buy, let's say I am incredibly wealthy, I wanted to buy a half a billion dollars worth of gold um, and I wanted to do it through your ETF. Obviously, I could 
you could facilitate a half a billion dollar purchase of gold without affecting the share price of the underlying ETF security to any great degree. The, in principle, that's how it would go. And, and on that point, I should say with, uh, with larger size purchases, sometimes what we will do uh, for the client is put them directly in contact with the market maker. So in those circumstances, it could be something of an off-market trade. Um, but because the gold market itself is so deep, so liquid, so globalized, mm. um, that an individual purchase such as that might not affect the underlying price of the asset. Um, but in terms of actually getting that trade f- fulfilled, uh, mm. that could be accomplished. Okay, great. So does that so does that guarantee that the unit price will always be in line with the underlying value of the gold? That's a great question. Uh, in principle, the role of the market maker in terms of uh, issuing new units, which which are referred to as creations, or yeah. taking units off of the exchange, which are referred to as redemption, uh, those two things that market makers do should, in theory, keep the on-market price, that's the price at which you buy the ETF, in line with the underlying asset value. Yeah. Uh, to say if you had a basket of equities, that, that basket, the ETF, when you see it on ComSec or what have you, uh, it's, it reflects the actual value of the underlying equity. So they're one-to-one. Um, so if, again, if basically uh, the demand drops in order to make sure that the ETF price doesn't drop beneath uh, the net asset value or what have you, then you redeem units and you move it in line in that way. So that's why you'll always see I a buy and a sell on, on the ASX kind of sitting there. Uh, and, but you, you wouldn't be just putting a market order in like you would in it, like a, a BHP stock. You'd, you'd generally limit order if you're buying a... So if you can work out the NTA, most of these funds tell you what the NTA is. Yes. And then you go into, and you're a retail investor, you're doing it yourself, and then you go in to buy it. Typically, what we would do anyway, and, and, and individual investors should do the same, is then put a limit order around or close to that NTA, and throughout the day, it should get filled. Is that right? Um, uh, the limit order is, a, is certainly a best practice. I couldn't agree more. In terms of getting your order fulfilled or hit at, you know, say uh, putting it at NAV, not necessarily because you're going to have to have a little bit more uh, than that, simply because you're going to have a spread and the market maker is going to a spread, which is basically uh, an add-on, a slight add-on in cost for the market maker to recoup their hedging costs that I mentioned earlier. So in other words, a market maker is a business and one of the ways that they retrieve a return on their market making activity is by having a spread. So but you're right. One thing that I say um, to clients is given that ETFs are very transparent in respect of pricing, underlying holdings, and all of that is updated by an ETF provider on a daily basis on their website. So you should, uh, as a part of that best practice, you know, the limit orders and so on and so forth, you should refer to the website of an ETF provider, see what the NAV is, and use that as something of a benchmark use it as a benchmark and say, okay, that's going to be my guide. And does it, the buy-sell, it's really a buy-sell spread, which is exactly the same as in a traditional managed fund. There's a buy-sell spread when you invest into a managed fund. No one ever talks about the buy-sell spread. But in this, is there, does it depend on the complication of the underlying asset would determine the buy-sell spread? Um, so, okay, so something that's very liquid, liquid like the S&P 500, it should be, 
how many basis points are you talking about, Chad? Is it is it twenty? Is it ten? It did well. Okay, so for uh, an ASX 200, ASX 300, and S&P 500, those very highly traded universes uh, spreads are narrower. Around what you said in terms of 10, 14, gold maybe around RGOLD fund around 15 basis points. Um, but you're right. Insofar as the underlying asset, and for example, it could be international equities, but more specifically, it could be emerging markets. We have uh, an India fund, in, incidentally. And that to trade uh, Indian equities is costly. Mm. Um, so in other words, that cost is going to be inbuilt or reflected in the spread. You're absolutely correct. Great. So maybe a question, I know it's, it's rare and I don't think you've done ETF securities had one, but what happens when an ETF shuts or closes down? Like a managed fund, for instance, would sell everything and send you your cash back. Um, Yes. Is an ETF the same or can they send you the gold for the gold ETF or do they distribute the units or stocks? Mm. Yeah. Um, okay. So when we, and we've closed a fund before we actually had, so a part of our bio, biography, the initial story, the background that I gave about our company, um, I didn't mention that in 2000, which we started to build out our equity range, we actually had a joint venture with ANZ Bank. So I used to work at ANZ Bank and, and we weren't able to distribute or talk about or sell GOLD. It was a standalone at that point. And in that joint venture, we actually had another gold fund. And when the joint venture ended in 2018, that gold fund, not the GOLD fund, we did shut down. But what happens uh, when a fund is shut down is we will give notice to the investor and they have a choice more or less to either sell before the wrap up of the wind up of the fund, or they can wait and we'll do that basically on their behalf. Um, and then they'll get basically the, the prevailing price at, at, you know, the time when we wind up the fund um, in terms of getting gold back, that's it. Our fund allows for redemptions. Um, we had won a very large scale redemption for physical in ETF Securities London, but it's rare. Usually uh, the circumstance where it happens is if the client has a very major holding. So multiple hundreds of millions, uh, if not a billion in holdings, and then it makes it kind of worthwhile uh, cost-wise to actually do the redemption because uh, for physical redemption of the gold, there is an associated cost uh, that we have which is around $1,000. And then you also have to have uh, a, a bullion broker in the London Bullion Market Association. That's the, the area of London where we still have our, our gold in custody with JP Morgan and so forth. So to get the physical met metal in a word is just, there's a few steps, but if you so choose, you can redeem for the metal, yes. Yeah, I think the, the Perth Mint charges something like 5% for a fabrication fee, which... Okay. Yeah, they use a percentage, you get fixed fee because you're an institution, so it'd be far cheaper. Uh, maybe that's a good segue into the gold ETF, Jamie, and comparing, uh, you know, synthetic, if you want to define that, and, and physical backed ETFs. I know there's probably, if you, depends how much you troll the internet, but there's quite a few articles about there being more, more ETFs with gold on issue than actual gold that in existence. <laughs> Could you explain how the... ETF securities gold ETF works compared to a synthetic one, for instance. Okay. Um, what I'll say is that just most immediately in terms of um, 
the way that we operate that fund because it's physically backed, uh, anytime we do a creation with a market maker, which is to say we bring newly issued units uh, onto the exchange, it has to be the case that we receive or have the metal prior to the units being issued. So in other words, there is no disconnect between the gold that we have in our vault and the number of units on issue. Um, the way that we structured the product uh, is such that we can't issue new units unless we have the gold in the vault at JP Morgan London. Uh, in terms of synthetic versus physical, uh, synthetic is basically you get the price exposure uh, via like a, a futures contract or what have you, or some kind of options contract. Um, but it's, it's not necessarily then the case that you have immediate ownership over the gold, which is to say you don't always already own the gold. And the, yeah. the reason why we structured gold in the manner that I just outlined before is because we know that it's something of a fear asset, a fear asset. And if it's a fear asset, then you want to have something of a very robust product structure. So we didn't want any disconnection between the metal and the units issued because we know it's a safe haven. Uh, investors actually like to know that not only is it physically backed, uh, but you have outright ownership or entitlement to the metal in the vault. Um, so those are roughly the differences between a synthetic. A synthetic is uh, you have price exposure, but you don't necessarily have ownership of the metal unless you exercise that's a, a call option, which is the Perth Mint. Um, and Perth Mint, incidentally, I know the research um, uh, individual there, he's a great, great guy. Uh, so that's the, the slight difference is the Perth Mint, it's, it's uh, asset backed. There is gold in the vault, but there isn't immediate ownership over the gold unless the investor, as I understand it, uh, they exercise basically a call option to, to buy the gold. Yeah, and then synthetic would have been, sense. I hope that makes sense. Definitely, I think, Jamie, makes sense. Yeah, it kind of explains what happened with the oil price during March and April as well, where a lot of the oil price products are uh, based on futures and the futures price went negative, which effectively meant the ETF could go below zero um, yes. at some point. So that's why you, in fear you want uh, uh, real asset backing. That's a great point. That's a great point. I mean, we could talk about that oil ETF for um, for the next uh, hour and a half. <laughs> this is a fascinating case study about ETFs and what can potentially go wrong and how they were getting their exposure. And you've seen not much of a price recovery in that ETF. But um, we'll keep going on about gold. Um, so essentially, this is an unhedged gold price. So it's priced in US dollars. Um, the, the correlation associated with your ETF and the gold price is pretty close. Is that, is that one? Yes, yes. Um, so in terms of the unhedged aspect of uh, GOLD, which is our ETF uh, for the, the physical gold, uh, I like to refer to it more accurately as Australian dollar gold. Um, so it's, it's unhedged in the sense that you're not overlaying onto your exposure uh, a call on the currency. Uh, gold is a globally traded commodity. It basically has a global price. And so the Australian price for gold, which GOLD follows, uh, is the global price for gold, just in the context of Australia. So in other words, it's the pure exposure to gold. When you hedge it, you're effectively making a currency judgment as well. So when we bought it originally seven years ago, the investment com committee approved an allocation in our model and that was around two elements. 
it was a currency element. We wanted to get more currency exposure in our portfolio as a hedge to the total portfolio. So your product did that. And the second second thing was um, austerity. Um, you know, how much money is being printed and, you know, today, the RBA from yesterday is even printing money. Um, so, you know, we, we used it for two things. Initially, for the first, um, let's say we had it for seven years, the first five and a half years or six years, we got the currency really paid off where it moved from 90 all the way down to, you know, 60 or 70. Um, so a lot of our returns came from that. And then secondly, now the commodity price has started to move as well. And you're seeing more mainstream financial planners, investment advisors, fund managers talking about um, holding gold and increasing gold now. Um, so maybe we're ahead of our times, but you know, we, we saw it do, doing two real things for clients, both on currency and then the physical commodity. So maybe you know, this is not your not your strength, but I assume having a $2.2 billion gold fund, you've talked about gold a lot. So what attracts people to gold into portfolios? And, and you, I assume you would be feeling this kind of wave of excitement for investing in gold from investors at the moment. Um, okay, so it's an interesting thing because when an asset is doing well, everyone wants to speak about it. But prior to, uh, I would say actually it was around July of last year, uh, maybe some inflow and interest in, in mid-year August 2018. But before uh, mid-year 2019, talking about gold with clients is not necessarily an easy thing to do. It's not a cash generating asset, it's capital growth. Um, and, you know, the way in which Warren Buffett, for example, has spoke about it, uh, he kind of shuns that asset, at least up until now. Um, so in other words, it, it's never been a straightforward conversation to have, you know, a client use an asset that doesn't give cash back, especially for retirees, and so on and so forth. Um, from our viewpoint, where gold works in a portfolio, is uh, on a long-term buy and hold basis uh, in the context of asset allocation, as I mentioned earlier at the beginning, uh, which is to say that in your portfolio, because you don't know whether equities are going to do the best or property is going to do the best or fixed income or fixed interest here in Australia or your alternative assets, you wanna hold um, a combination of each. And so within that context of having an all weather proof portfolio by way of diversification across four asset classes, we think that gold fits in the alternative, uh, the alternative asset bucket. And it's characterized as an alternative precisely because it doesn't have an income stream. So equities have income streams via dividends and so forth, earnings, et cetera, et cetera. Gold doesn't. And as a result of not having those kind of uh, properties that equities have in terms of cash flow, then the dynamics that kind of push gold's price are very different than equities. And so because they're different, it offers diversification. That's exactly where diversification arises is because it's being pushed and pulled by different factors than equities. And so basically gold then, and it's perhaps trite to say, but it's true, uh, is something of portfolio life insurance. Yeah. And it's there to act as a ballast on a long-term basis to kind of countervail any drawdown in your equity. So insofar as gold uh, is low to negatively correlated 
with equities, which a correlation just simply means that, uh, you know, they move in different directions at the same time or less intensities. Uh, and, and so that's our viewpoint on gold. It's a diversifier. Uh, it's there to balance any drawdown that you might experience in your equities, such as occurred in February and March. Uh, the S&P 500 in US dollar terms decreased about 35%. Gold decreased as well, and there's some explanation for it, but it didn't, it didn't decrease to the extent that your risk assets did. And then that's where the diversification comes into play. Yeah, good, good points there. Uh, gold for us fits in our defensive alternatives. So we have two buckets. One's defensive alternatives, one's growth alternatives. And, you know, a, a previous partner of ours uh, and, and clients, I would put into that bucket, struggled with the concept of no income. So what do you do with an investment that historically looks defensive in characteristics, but doesn't produce income? And Going back, say, 10 years ago or five years ago or four years ago, where you could get interest rates, there was always a, a, a coupon you were foregoing for investing into gold, where now we see interest rates are you know, basically zero. So the coupon that people are foregoing is very close to zero. So the, 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 the concept that you're foregoing a coupon to invest in gold has has reduced substantially. The other thing that I want to make a point, because Drew and I manage people um, and portfolios, and uh, hedges are incredibly important for portfolios, incredibly important. However, most investors hate them. Because as you said, as equities go up, your worst performer is probably going to be in negatively correlated hedges. That right. being either a manager that is having a totally different view or having gold that is you know, not a part of the equity rally. And they're the ones that get picked on when everything else is going up. So the concept of still total portfolio and it's the it's the sum of the game and the volatility of that sum of the game is still poorly understood, I think, um, by a lot of people, probably including our clients, that you have to have your winners and your losers and you have to have your diversifiers. So the it's people exactly that right. pulled out gold, the other thing that I want to make a point, I know it's about you, but I'm talking, <laughs> is that a lot of advisors are yes people, right? Yes, 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 I'll do whatever I want. Whatever you say, I'll do yes. But, you know, the people that sold gold two years ago are missing out on a big opportunity just because they wanted to sell their, their not the worst performer, but something that wasn't performing. So for the investors investing out there and listening, it's really important that you have hedges in your portfolio. And I know at some points that they won't perform like equities, but they're a part of a total portfolio build. And that hedge is about different economic conditions as well. So gold, you kind of alluded to it before, can perform in inflation, which everyone agrees we'll have at some point in the next 5, 10, 20 years. <laughs> Who knows when that is? Yeah. But more importantly, as Jamie was saying, in deflationary environments, when interest rates are near or zero, or they're actually negative when you, you know, adjust for inflation now, uh, that's actually when gold does well. And particularly when you compare it to equity markets, which on traditional measures are, are quite high in valuation, uh, and also bond markets, which on every measure are, are you know, are overvalued as well. Uh, so it's and, and gold isn't just a precious commodity that goes on um, uh, fingers and around <laughs> necks. Um, it's also used in industry a lot and, you know, especially technology. So it's, it's growing in terms of the demand as technology grows globally. The demand for gold is also, is also growing. 
So um, who's been um, buying all the gold from a billion to two billion in a year? I'll keep remembering that. Get over it, Drew. I made a mistake. <laughs> is, it, is it financial advisors recommending the ETFs? Is it uh, going to model portfolios? Is it individual investors? Can, can you track that or... Yes, we, we have some look through on it to a degree, but you're exactly right. Each of those segments that you mentioned, uh, all the way from um, uh, financial advisors to retail and, and so on, each of those we've seen inflows from and the model portfolios as well. Um, so in other words, basically you have financial planning firms uh, allocating widely across all client portfolios to gold. Um, but going back to what, what Jamie said, I think it's very, very important. Um, just in terms of the hedge. Uh, it, it's hard to hold hedge uh, because if it works, um, there's points at which it's going to be performing negative uh, when your other risk assets are doing well, but that's the function. Otherwise, let's say if you had 100% in the risk asset, which today is doing well, if tomorrow it doesn't do well, that means your full allocation suffers the drawdown rather than if you had part in equities, part in gold, and they're moving in opposite directions so that if one goes down, the other kind of goes up and balances it. So I think that's very important, but cognitively speaking, if you will, it's, it's hard to accept that. Um, but over the long term, it's about asset allocation. It's about having asset class performing at different times in different directions. Um, it, those are, that's a, a very important point. But, and then another thing, uh, you mentioned, and it's interesting, maybe we can segue into this in terms of the price drivers for gold. Uh, so I'll begin by just affirming exactly what Jamie said. Um, you forego when you purchase gold, uh, cash yielding assets. So Jamie mentioned you forego coupons on fixed interest or dividends on equities. But when basically, uh, especially for fixed interest, interest rates are so low, therefore coupons uh, are so low themselves, that the opportunity cost of holding a non-yielding asset such as gold is low. So the opportunity cost of holding gold is not holding a cash-giving asset. But when rates are so low, that opportunity cost decreases. And what you see is you see investors migrate to more growth-oriented um, assets to try to get you know, that total return via growth because it's been diminished by way of income. Um, and, then, and then what you mentioned too, Drew, uh, in respect to the price driver of inflation, deinflation, disinflation, it's very interesting. I would say that um, it's a highly nuanced picture for gold. So if, uh, I'll mention just quickly um, deflation. Actually, as a matter of fact, in principle, it should be bad for gold because real after inflation uh, returns on cash should be high. Uh, precisely because your purchasing power by holding a dollar increases as prices go down, which is deflation. Um, but that should be net negative for gold, all else constant. But the qualification is this, is when you have deflation, as we had most dramatically in the 1930s uh, in the depression, and that's what scared Ben Bernanke uh, in 2008, 2009 to formulate QE, uh, the first iteration quantitative easing, in terms of monetary intervention to make sure that you avoid deflation. Because if you have deflation, you have high unemployment, you have prices collapsing and so on and so forth, and it's a negative spiral. So it's, it's uh, not good to have. So when that's happening, despite the fact that the real yields are high in relation to gold, people, individual investors uh, still might wanna hold gold because in a de-inflationary environment, you have credit risk. 
And one thing with gold is that it doesn't have counterparty credit risk, mm. uh, which is to say that if you uh, lend money to someone and having fixed interest exposure, effectively, that's what you're doing, you're lending money, you have counterparty risk to the party that you lent the money to. And if you have deinflation, businesses are stressed, collapsing, uh, you want to reduce counterparty risk. So you might go to an asset such as gold where uh, there are no counterparties involved uh, over it. Um, is that in, a, sorry, you go. Um, in terms of inflation, uh, there are some views, research views that over the long term, and I do mean over the long term, because with gold, it, it has its cycles and its moments. But um, there's research that show that, you know, over the long term, inflation is certainly a price driver uh, to gold. And when I say that, though, keep in mind, um, if gold is appreciating in relation to inflation, um, it's not necessarily dramatic. You know, gold is not, if you hold it uh, as a buy and hold diversifier, it's not shoot the lights out. It, it's there to act as a hedge. And so if inflation is going up 2%, 3%, then perhaps you're going to have over the long term that priced into to gold. There's other price drivers as well, but mainly fundamentally from our price model that we have on gold that we follow, it's in relation to real yields. And, and, and what factors into real yields, there's two components. And you have to talk about both components. Um, you talk about the nominal prevailing interest rate, which is set uh, by Federal Reserve policy or central bank policy, more or less, uh, on the short end of the yield curve. But then also you have inflation. And so, you know, if interest rates go up, all things constant, inflation constant, that's net negative for gold. If interest rates go down, it's net positive for gold. Uh, if you hold the interest rate constant, you look at inflation. If inflation goes up, uh, that's obviously positive for gold because your real after inflation return is lower. But if you have deflation, as mentioned, it should be negative for gold. But if you combine those two, uh, you get the real return. And uh, what we see is that gold's price over the past decade has been highly correlated with the US 10-year uh, real treasury yield. It's a very deep market. And when real yields go down and the opportunity cost, as Jamie mentioned, uh, goes down and holding a, a non-cash yielding asset, then you start to have a flight to gold. If all that makes sense, I hope that, um, I hope that makes That's sense. That's good. I think the, uh, the point about portfolio construction that I wanna make is rebalancing of hedges is important as well. And typically the best time to rebalance a portfolio is in a shock or a crisis. So March, April, that was a perfect opportunity. And you know, don't take this as an offense, Chad, but we sold some gold and to buy equities, you know, essentially it did yes, its job. Sure. And same as long bonds. We had a lot of long, long bonds um, that we sold in March and April to buy equities. So you can have hedges. Um, it's not just building a portfolio and forgetting the real return addition is having a structure or a framework in place. So when there is a crisis event and markets drop 30%, you can pick up your assets that have either increased or stay the same and rebalance into the assets that have fallen off. Now that takes, takes a team, yep. it takes to be brave, but essentially that's where you're adding a lot of value by holding these instruments. Um, we kind of first learned that through the GFC where everything was on sale, but everything that we were holding uh, essentially had fallen. Now, some of those instruments were, we were told that they wouldn't fall in a crisis, but guess what? 
uh, you know, the traditional hedge funds all fell off substantially and you couldn't sell them and you couldn't buy equities cheaper. So the rebalance, even though we did rebalance in 2008, worked. It didn't have the same degree of ability that we think we have now where you could sell some of more of these hedges and buy cheap assets. So, On the, um, the rebalancing, um, I completely agree, especially in relation to um, if gold is giving you back capital appreciation and, and precisely because it doesn't give back uh, cash, one of the ways to tangibly feel the benefit of gold is to rebalance and profit take. Um, if you can do that cost effectively. And then just incidentally, uh, in terms of what you mentioned, some, some of your hedging uh, exposures uh, perhaps didn't perform as expected. I should mention because the gold stories, it is nuanced. So in other words, it's not a perfect hedge. It's imperfect. There's times at which gold is, is positively correlated to equities. And actually recently, we've seen that the correlation go up a little bit vis-a-vis uh, -vis equities for uh, a number of reasons. And then there's times at which it's negatively correlated. So mm. that, that's, that's very good if you, if you have a negative correlation where one uh, drops, the other rises. But it's a more nuanced story. And correlations change over time, don't they? We kind of see them as being historical and fixed, but they change during times of crisis. We can blame Warren Buffett for that, can't we? Because now he's said he'd never buy gold, but he's bought massive holdings in two of the biggest gold companies in the world <laughs> in the right. last six months. I think... Um, I mean, another good takeaway we got through that period of uh, March and April is when we spoke to the big platforms, you know, the, the hubs and power apps, they were saying that, um, and, you know, we're, we're probably pushing our own wagon here, but, you know, a, th a third of advisors were super active. You know, they were changing everything in clients' portfolios, but there was two thirds of client advisors that were just sitting on their hands and doing nothing and saying, well, hold your strategic asset allocation, hold your strategic asset allocation. Now, um, I think that's probably right, um, but you don't really need to pay an advisor if uh, you're just holding your strategic asset allocation over a long period of time. So there was two real distinct groups. You know, both both CEOs I spoke to were saying that. So um, do, you, do you follow kind of, before we get into the the finish um do you follow global flows of gold as well is that is that part of something that etf keeps an eye on yes um is it you know pension funds historically have had no so like australian super and these kind of groups have historically had no exposure whatsoever to to commodities they go into direct commodities or direct direct gold is is that seeing uh, an increase globally um, so you're correct, is that gold exposure by way of those large institutional pension superannuation oriented companies, um, if they wanted gold exposure, they might be able to actually get it very cost effectively by going direct and, and organizing it that way. So in other words, yeah. not necessarily by way of an exchange fund, but they still have the exposure nonetheless. Um, I think... Uh, because you're seeing a shift, there, there's a lot of argument, and I know Jamie referred to strategic allocation, asset allocation, which basically sets forth the parameters, and, and basically I'm going to have X of my money in equities, X in property, and so on and so forth. There's a, much discussion around the fixed income bucket, and, and basically the arguments are, do we need to recalibrate our weighting to fixed income, given that interest rates are so low? And because of that, you're seeing larger investors uh, have a little bit more scope for uh, gold. And I should say, 
gold is a commodity, but I would think that it's, um, it's, it's more uh, diverse than that, more dynamic. You know, if you look in, in February and March, oil dropped, which is a pure commodity, gold did not drop. So in other words, gold has those safe harbor characteristics. Going back to pension funds, uh, one of the reasons perhaps historically that they didn't use gold as much is because they have to service liabilities. They have to have cash generating assets and so forth. But now that interest rates have perhaps shifted the parameters of your long-term uh, guidelines and how you're going to construct your portfolio, now you have more uh, money managers looking at areas like commodities, precious metals, uh, private equity, anywhere uh, apart from that fixed income bucket to try to generate returns to meet the liabilities of their, their pension members and so forth. It's a bit of a follow the leader in pension funds around the world as well. So if someone adds 2%, then everyone starts looking at adding 2% to their portfolio in gold, just about, or in, in Australia at least. So, And that would obviously be a lot more powerful for the gold price globally than Know, than ETFs or, or retail investors and financial advisors trading in it. So there was um, a question about how, what price could go, go to in terms of up and down in the next 12 months. Now, obviously it's incredibly hard. We're not going to ask you that, Chad, but <laughs> th there is a lot of demand coming for gold. And, you know, um, I, um, I've been openly, openly positive on gold and said, when you look at the landscape of the world, you know, you could really argue that gold could go to, um, could double in value. Um, there, there, there's a there's a potential for it to double in value over a period of time with everything that's going into it. Low rates, portfolios are getting redesigned, rebuilt. It's a limited commodity. You know, people are accepting this a little bit more. Long-term holds. So you could potentially build a story that it doubles over, say, 18 months. I could probably build a story that it halves over the 18 months as well. Um, but you know, gold prices is a part of one of the parts, and we're not going to make real, real estimations where it is in a year. But good question, nevertheless. Um, you don't need a, a gold standard to be introduced again for it to become more valuable either. It's not a, you know, it's not a doom and gloom thing <laughs> as we've seen um not all the time it's, it's it's something of a fear asset but not all the time um in terms of where the gold price might go i'm actually going to offer and i hope this is refreshing i'm going to offer something more uh, less bullish perhaps a little bit more bearish um our our price model one of the price models that we follow as mentioned is in relation to the real yields now, I know that um, real yields are expected to be uh, very low, in fact, negative. But going into next year, there's, um, there's a case to be made that it, real yields become less negative. And if, if they become less negative, that's uh, not positive for the gold price. So there is a view and a case to be made uh, that if uh, real 10-year US Treasury yields become less negative, it puts pressure on the gold price. And so one forecast, um, on the basis of that, of that view, sees gold's price uh, around the second quarter of 2021 at about 1790, that's US dollar terms. So, so in other words, you might have a retracement down of the price premium that gold has built up in relation to real yields and there's something of a price premium. Um, there's, there's that view, but what Jamie said in terms of there's you know, a lot of liquidity by way of central banks uh, pump priming uh, you know, the financial infrastructure and whether or not that actually transpires 
excuse me, translates into inflation, which should be positive for gold is yet to be seen. Interestingly enough, in terms of inflation, um, you know, it hasn't been the case uh, for quite some time that when central banks uh, inject more liquidity in terms of monetary statistics, if you look at the expansion of uh, money supply in terms of M1, M2, and so forth, there hasn't been a correlation actually to inflation. So they've expanded the supply, but inflation actually hasn't come. Just inflation in share prices, not, yeah, yeah. Not, in actual, not in the actual economy. Precisely. So obviously the market right now in asset markets, there's the reflation story, but whether or not consumer price index, if you're going to get in wages, that's yet to be seen. So all I am saying is, is that those tailwinds for gold that are affected in terms of uh, inflation, uh, COVID-19 opening in the form of uncertainty, that's certainly tailwind for gold. But in relation to real yields, uh, there's more of a neutral um, stance. Okay, and then we've got the currency to think about as well. We've got about 10 minutes left. Um, and I'm wanting to run through four other ETFs that you guys have. Sure. Um, so fast and quick, or we'll just, uh, any, any viewers can drop off. Um, but so the four that we want to cover, we're, we're starting at your low vol, high income ETF high yield ETF, uh, the US based one. Um, can you can you talk a little bit about that? We had some quick questions. How do you measure vol? How do you measure yield? How often is it rebalanced? Are they active or passive? Or is it active or passive? Okay, so for, for that income, dividend income fund of ours, uh, the ticker is ZYUS. Um, and it basically covers companies in the S&P 500 that are um, basically yield giving that compared to their peers, they have higher yields in addition to low volatility. Uh, so we, we created that fund as basically a way to diversify your income to offshore markets. We know there's a heavy concentration to equities uh, in the domestic market via the banks and so forth. Obviously the banks haven't performed very well. So the notion that we had was let's build an income, dividend income strategy over another market that's running on a separate engine and so forth to diversify. Um, in terms of how we select the stocks, uh, it's not a market cap weighted portfolio. So it's, it's semi-active in a sense that it looks for stocks beyond uh, their size, the company sizes. And it's looking for stocks as mentioned that have a high historical dividend yield. And then also that that company is the least volatile among other high yielding US companies. And that's how we compose the portfolio. It's roughly, roughly 50 US companies in ZYUS. And that's measured volatility over the previous 12 months. Correct, uh, over yeah. the previous 252 trading days <laughs> yeah. we're looking, yes. Okay, great. Fang, F-A-N-G. That, that is do? our plain basket ready uh, you know, portfolio on those companies. We, we brought that to market just for accessibility basically. Uh, so the, the index stock selection strategy behind it, um, it more or less stays static with those companies. There's, there's not uh, a Just the four, is it? Sure. Uh, 10. 10, okay. So Ten you have to change the name. Um, and, yeah, and, there's four letters there, mate. <laughs> and, and, you know, you know, um, Couldn't spell a 10-letter word. word. I should have said Fang Plus. Fang Plus. Fang Plus. Okay. Fang Plus. Okay. So yep. that, that's that fun. Well, most so, of the companies that start with an A anyway, don't they? <laughs> Apple, Amazon, Alibaba, Alphabet. 
Too many oh, valves. Yeah, there are too always. many valves. <laughs> and does that get rebalanced, or that that's the ten stocks that will stay there for the next uh, five years? Uh, they, it gets rebalanced quarterly, but when we get rebalances, it's merely bringing the weightings of each company back to ten percent, so it's equally weighted. So, in other words, when we rebalance, we're not doing kind of additions, subtractions, new holdings. It's just keeping each allocation in line with 10%. So we- So we equally, equally weighted, rebalance every quarter. Precisely. So ACDC was probably the most interesting one for me. We saw, a, I don't, can't remember how long ago it was now, two years ago, maybe the, this massive lithium boom in small cap mining stocks in Australia that everyone was talking about. But it was never, you know, as we saw, most of them are down 60% or so from where they from where they peaked. So ACDC provides a kind of different exposure to that to that sector. That that's correct. So basically, not only do you have exposure to uh, lithium miners, but you have exposure to the automobile companies that are transitioning their manufacturing uh, toward battery-based cars. Uh, you also have uh, kind of electrochemical storage uh, com companies themselves, like LG Chemical. Lockheed Martin, which has a flow battery. So it's it's more that value chain uh, play, ACDC is. Inverters as well, is that kind of the part where you tr you transfer um, energy, uh, solar energy back into usable energy? Yes. <laughs> That's yeah. one of the, right? Yeah, and it holds Australian and overseas companies in there too. Global, global and range. Yeah. And Robo? Robo is a very interesting fund. So I know, Jamie, you mentioned, um, uh, you know, is it an active fund, ZYUS? Um, with Robo, I think uh, it is certainly active-esque or active manager-like because there is an expert team behind the index that we've partnered with, um, analysts that they have. They meet the managers. Uh, it's a highly qualified portfolio to target uh, the area of robotics, automation, and artificial intelligence, basically companies that are the picks and axes selling uh, automation and enabling platforms to a variety of companies in a variety of subsectors from healthcare uh, to agriculture and so on and so forth. That portfolio, um, it's across large cap, small cap, mid cap. It's across Japanese equities, US equities, and so on and so forth. It's, it's a good way to tap into uh, that structural theme of businesses transitioning to more efficient ways of, of doing business, more or less. So yeah. that, that, that's a really, um, we should make the point, uh, Waddle Partners uses ETFs in a, a number of different uh, ways. One is a part of the core portfolio, like gold can be or S&P 500, but Mostly, we see at the investment committee level, we see ETFs as a great way to be able to tilt portfolios. So if you want to be, your client wants to be, because uh, we are building bespoke portfolios, if they want to be overweight biotech or cybersecurity or AI or um, you know batteries, then it, it's a really easy way to get a predetermined portfolio executed on the ASX and tilt that portfolio left, right, up or down. So you know, Chad is you've got about seventy odd products. Is that right, Chad? Uh, we have uh, nineteen different products, and basically what you said about um, sorry, it, I meant the market. The Australian market has about two, seventy much. Two hundred. I'm totally wrong. I'm totally wrong. <laughs> Just go with me, Chad. Go with Yes, you're right, Jamie. Yes. Exchange traded funds um, that are available in Australia. Is that the question? Yes. 
about 200 or so. But um, going just quickly back to the thematic investing, uh, you said like a predetermined portfolio, that, that's correct. The notion that we had with that is that if an investor has an interest in biotechnology, battery technology, but they didn't feel as though they were comfortable making the stock picking choices, that they can have an index. And if they're comfortable with the stock selection strategy underpinning the index, they can invest that way. It's very hard to get a pure play, an actively managed fund, for instance, might be performing well, but it might only have 5% in biotech and you want 100 um, yeah. or the client wants 100. So mm. anything up your sleeve for a, a new release uh, that you want to announce yet? Or um, There's always something that we're looking at, just trying to fill gaps in the market. So where, where you know, ETF providers, um, they're not... Uh, you know, have a certain product at a particular moment and we see the demand for it, we're going to certainly investigate it. So yeah. uh, incomes one uh, credit, um, that is to say, um, some other interesting areas. I know crypto has been raised and I, I have to say we too are exploring that. Um, so any any area where we think there's robust demand for it and a gap in portfolios, we'll attempt to um, fill it. Well, as advisors, we, we, we really um, uh, think ETFs and the advent of ETFs in the Australian market has been a, a massive positive for advisors and for investors. And, you know, obviously ETF securities has led the way there and continues to. Um, Chad, it's been a pleasure for the last hour and a bit to talk about gold and ETFs. Uh, really appreciate your time today, but also your help over the last uh, couple of years in terms of helping us design portfolios and give us uh, you know, new ideas to think about and tilt. It's, uh, it's appreciated. Thanks, mate. Thank you. Thank you very much, Jamie. Thank you, Drew. I always appreciate it. Um, I actually enjoy hearing you write and speak uh, very much, as you know, so it's, it's been a pleasure. I'd say that. <laughs> Great, mate. So Enjoy. next week, we've got Phil from Yarra Capital. He's talking about income opportunities in the Australian preference and bond market. Uh, please join us next Wednesday. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Drew. Thanks, Chad. Thanks.